think I think really with this podcast, you wanted to tell stories to little kids. That's a, I'm looking at you. You got a book, your legs crossed, you, you know, sitting there at your dad's little chair. If you only had like 20, around, 20 gather, gather kindergartners around, around. <laughs> come here. Let's Uncle James, he's going to read a little excerpt from <laughs> The Pig I and I. <laughs> pretty big deal. The Great Dive Podcast is hosted by your buddies, James and Brando. I heard you like shipwrecks where people died, so... Aboard the Morell's sister ship Townsend, Captain Connolly followed somewhat more leisurely. At 3 p.m., I should, uh... Do you have, do you have your pages where you're going to read from, like, marked on? You're just going to read this one page. Heard something funny yesterday. More Dima. Dima talk. So, you know, I went with my dear friend Jamie mm-hmm. that we you know, just spent a, a week cave diving with her and her man, Wolfie. Yeah. You know, so the three of us roomed up down there in northern Florida for the week mm-hmm. and both decided, hey, we we're going to Dima, want to share a room. Yeah. Wolf was okay with it. Yeah. I checked with Patty. She's like, yeah, go for it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> She's like, it's like, just don't be walking around in a towel, you know, <laughs> and they're like, so anyways, um, so Craig gets back from the show yesterday, mm-hmm. and he says, by the way, I heard numerous times that you were shacked up with some blonde who was not your wife. <laughs> was he serious? Did he <laughs> yeah, not no. know what was going on? Well, no, he said, yeah, he was serious. But I, but I guess like a bunch of people yeah. that we knew you yeah. know, throughout the industry like saw me walking around with her every day at the show. Right. Um, hanging out with we her at the hotel bar, happen. going upstairs yeah. at the yeah. bar. Boy, does this community talk. Every community talks, yeah. yeah. Boy, do they talk. Yeah, dude, you had to know that was going to happen. So, those of you who are thinking bad thoughts of old James, and <laughs> some his, people look at your friend James. All right, you go, James, you get some. <laughs> okay, so. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Great Dive Podcast. Yeah, welcome back. So last week we talked about Becky's article from Wreck Diving Diving Magazine. Mm -hmm. And, you know... Becky Kagan shot. Thank you. Yes. Uh, Diving. People people might have missed last week's episode. Sometimes they... If you missed last week... Tune in. Stop this one. Yes. Go back. Listen to the episode prior... Diving the Daniel J. Morrell, and By then Becky come back Kagan and, shot, and then come back and listen to this one: the sinking of the Daniel J. Morrell. So this is a little bit of a different style of show because it's not really talking about diving per se. Mm-hmm. It's reading through William Radigan's 
classic book, Great Lake Shipwrecks and Survivals. I think it adds to and the he's diving. Got, uh, he's just got that poetic way of, yeah, of writing, and it's it's a wild story, and he uh, he does a damn good job at it. And when you can read through and hear or hear this story of of what was happening out on that water, it really puts you in a place when you can actually get underwater on these wrecks, and you've got a. a it, it's one thing to just go on a shipwreck to see a shipwreck, but to to hear the story. And to know the story when you're diving these dives gives a little bit of a different take when you're you're there firsthand. Well, I think it enhances the dive experience, right? If you know the background of the wreck you're diving, and this one is a you know big tragedy, and kind of has that sole survivor story bit to it, and an incredible survival story. You're not he's not yes. just like he he got rescued. He was the only guy rescued. He was Endured out hell. there yes he was out there freezing for well over a day and then some and just an unusual circumstance in a miracle survival story so when you're diving it you're thinking about that you know and what, yeah when you what go down through yeah you go down to a lot of shipwrecks that that you're on throughout the world that are just really big amazing cool shipwrecks like the spiegel grove yeah super awesome but fun dive but but no it's, story. Mi- it's missing something, right? Yeah. Because it's not real. Yeah. It was put there. Right? Well, the kitty, real, the kitty wake in Cayman. Really big, awesome, cool wreck. Mm-hmm. But, but it doesn't have that tragic tale to it. It doesn't have that part of... People got to die for us to really <laughs> enjoy our diving. The <laughs> <laughs> sick son of a bitch as we are in the dive community. <laughs> if only someone died here, I could really enjoy this dive. Hey, did you ever dive the? You ever dive the Thistlegorn? Thistlegorn. Did uh, did anyone die on it? No, no, no. Fuck that. <laughs> Why are you wasting my time, Holmes? <laughs> Off the list. <laughs> okay, so let's get started. The preceding Saturday. Oh, we should say that. So this is the anniversary yeah. of the sinking of the Daniel J. Morrell. Nice timing, Jamesy. Nice time plan. Everybody thinks we just like wake up, open up a book, and and there's the topic, and and we talk for an hour, and that's it. The reality is James has he plans this stuff out. The so 29th, kudos. The twenty ninth of November, nineteen sixty six. Now ask James to remember his anniversary. You better step off. Hang on, let me uh, check my <laughs> iPhone calendar. <laughs> Hold on, I got it here somewhere. I got a, yeah. I got an alert to pop up t- two days before and the day before. Priorities. The preceding Saturday had been a fine day. Fine enough for Santa Claus himself to parachute into one northern Michigan community and bring a pre-Christmas treat of candy for youngsters on his skydive. But the last week of November 1966 blew off the calendar in a mood reminiscent of of the great storm of November 1913, we talked about a few weeks ago. Monday the 28th, a howling blizzard gathered power as it swept south, riling up 12-foot waves in Grand Traverse Bay on Lake Michigan. Rocks almost as large as footballs were hurled 300 feet inland by the crashing seas. It's crazy, man. Crazy. If anybody's seen Traverse Bay. And Grand Traverse Bay is, is big. 
Um, and when it's rough out there, though, it, it's still smooth in Grand Traverse Bay. Right. For yeah, all it's a, it's a very there. protected bay. Mm-hmm. To have 12-foot waves in the bay. Insanity. Apocalyptic. It's the end of the world. That's what I'd be, running on the beach. We're all going to die. <laughs> Down along the Detroit River, early in the morning of the last Monday in November, two sister ships, both owned by the Cambria Steamship Company of Cleveland, were getting ready to resume a long journey up the lakes and connecting waters. The vessels were the 580-foot steamer Edward Y. Townsend and the 603-foot Daniel J. Morrell, both of which had put about 60 years of faithful service on fresh water behind them. The Townsend and the Morrell had come up from Buffalo over the weekend, clearing Lake Erie in the teeth of the threatening weather, and then casting anchor in Detroit River berths. They were headed north toward Lake Superior, riding with ballast in their holds, destined for Taconite Harbor, Minnesota, to load cargoes of iron ore. 20,000 tons more. Yeah. I'll just throw that out there. <laughs> okay, Gord. <laughs> oh, Gord. Told you he's coming April 4th. You going? I think so. Get the old wifey out there. I used to love Gord's Gold. That's one album you can listen from start to finish. I don't know a lot of albums like that out there. Start to fish, finish. One bottle of wine, two cigars, and Gordon Lightfoot. I don't know. Have you ever heard... Forget about it. you ever heard Rocket to Russia from the Ramones? <laughs> yes, exactly. You just proved my point. <laughs> that would be... That's more of a one bottle of cheap whiskey. <laughs> and then yeah, after the first song, I'm passed out. Captain Thomas J. Connolly, 48, of Mentor, Ohio, master of the Townsend, was a veteran of 27 years on the water, while the skipper of the Morell, Captain Arthur I. Crowley, Rocky River, Ohio, had 29 years of experience. Although he had earned his master's papers several years in the past, this was Crowley's first season as a captain and his second ship of the year because he had started in the spring with the freighter Lebanon on which he had begun his career the day after graduating from high school. Although the lake suited him fine, the 47-year-old bachelor never had wanted his nephews to go on a boat. Even in the summer, he advised them never to become seamen. Such a lonesome life. Up early Monday morning, he checked the crew and found the ship still lacked one fireman and three deckhands. One of the three deckhands was Dennis Hale. 26-year-old father of four, husky 230-pound six-footer, who worked on the lakes because he made more money there than he could as a chef back in Ohio. Not at one of those restaurants by the quarry. <laughs> you can bring in all those divers coming there, the big tippers. What is that little restaurant by, uh, I can't remember the name of it, over there by White Star, across the street? The Hungry Bear. Is that it? The Hungry Bear in Gibsonburg, Ohio. Yeah. Is that yeah. the one that gives you like the huge omelets? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. What about that? What about that, Dennis? That would have... You wouldn't be famous now. Shout out to Holly at the the Golden Bear. <laughs> golden Bear, the Hungry Bear. Golden oh, yeah. Bear is a golf course oh, and a golfer. Gold, well, that's because the the, the, the the high school right there is the they're the Golden Bears. So that's the Hungry Bear. Ah, uh, that's right. The hungry Golden Bear is the restaurant down the street. So Dennis Hale almost didn't even make the, the ship. Right. So he got off. Got off in Detroit. They were going to be, you know. Uh, Sitting there for a bit. So he was going to shoot down to Ohio and back and miss the pickup. Interesting. Yeah. 
was he in a wee bit of trouble from that? I mean, would he get in trouble? Well, he was he was due to miss out on like a couple thousand dollars pay at the end of the season. Yeah, but who's fucking so making their in, goddamn meals? <laughs> Excuse me. Yeah. So, Who is making their meals, though? So he was like, uh, who's making their meals? I mean, he's the chef on the... No, he was uh, one of the watchmen. Oh. So they they were trying... Yeah, yeah, so they they had to like shoot up different spot and get picked up. Where did so they could up? make uh so that they could make the boat. Okay. Yeah, so when you look at Dennis in his uh, reflections book, Shipwrecked, he says, uh, before arriving at the dock in Bethlehem Steel in Lackawanna, where he uh, he lived only like three hours away from, he could see the lights on the Daniel J. Morrell as she was clear on the break wall. It was 1130, and we had missed the ship. The date was November 26, 1966. We went to the Coast Guard station, and I called Captain Crawley on the ship to shore radio. He told us to meet the ship at Consolidated Coal Dock in Windsor, Ontario. There, the Morel would take on 221s of coal for fuel. If I didn't catch the ship, I would forfeit vacation pay, extended vacation pay, and an annual bonus, all totaling about six to $7,000. Wow. Back yeah. in the uh, you know, yeah, that's a lot of money, mid-60s. Right? Mm-hmm. It's a lot of money today. but So he wasn't that, I mean, got on in Windsor instead of Detroit, you know, just across the river. Yeah, so. yeah, so, uh, yeah, right, right. Aboard the Morell's sister ship Townsend, Captain Connolly followed somewhat more leisurely. At 3 p.m., he reported both ships underway and the Morell ahead. The weather was mean and getting worse with every gust of wind. As the two old ladies pulled across the flats and up the St. Clair River into the cold, angry jaws of Lake Huron, both ships had undergone the necessary Coast Guard inspections and passed with a clean bill of health. Common to stories told about older vessels, there had been some scuttlebutt about rusty rivets and leakage, as the case of the Bradley. In fact, a coal passer aboard the Morel had written his wife a letter several weeks before about the ore carrier's arrival in Escanaba. The fog lifted about 7 a.m. this morning, so we could get into dock. Two more tubes blew in the boiler. This old boat has just about had it. Dang. So, yeah. Kind of the eerie, foreshadowing, the eerie the, foreshadowing, yeah, yeah, the tragedy. Well, I think our our friend Gareth Locke could could start to take this apart a little bit, like analyzing. You saw these things were going wrong. You did nothing about it because everybody, a lot of this stuff happens. This, well, yeah, you know, so, you just go. Well, the, yeah. So there's so much more to yes. uh, a big storm and a shipwreck, right? There's than a, than a tragedy diving. <laughs> Yeah, there's yeah. the there's the high. Yes and no. I agree, but I I'm, I tend to go. I think you can break them both down the same way. Like mistakes get ignored, or yeah, because I mean. it's normalization of deviance. We've always ah, it'll be all right. We've had worse. I've, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. Yeah. Kind the, of the, the the rivets are. Yeah. Why do you let it go? Would be my the question. The steel's old. Mm-hmm. The ship's old. The uh, we, we talked about how the, the high sulfur content in the steel they later learned, mm-hmm. uh, trying to get the last run in. Well, that's another 7000 It's another 7000 mm-hmm. bucks I could put in my pocket. You know, mm-hmm. it's all this stuff. Right. It's just like that. up to, mm-hmm. like, yeah, like, $300 in, in gas. Yeah. In hindsight, you're like, yeah. you didn't I should have I should, I known yeah. that. I should have known yeah. that. I should have known that. I should have known that. I should have known that. Exactly. The hindsight bias is always accurate. So. 
On the other side of the story, the Morell, according to one of her former skippers, had the reputation of having passed unscathed through the 1958 storm that sank the Bradley, negotiating Lake Huron undamaged in 100-mile-an-hour winds, although it took her 18 hours to make 45 miles. Entering Lake Huron, the two veteran steamers began to feel the full brunt of the storm. Miles ahead of the Townsend, the Morell plunged through a heaving jungle of sea. She twisted and groaned under mountainous waves, but there was no indication that the maritime sexagenarian... Sex or sexta? S-E-X-A. Uh, 60-year-old. Sexagenarian. In her 60s. Okay, yeah, okay, I get you. It's like a septagenarian is in their 90s, I believe, or could be 70. No, it's 90s. No, but, it's 70s, I'm sorry. Sept is seven, isn't it? Yeah, septa would be seven. Yes, which is makes you wonder why September is... I, I know why. Did you know why? No. September is 7th. Come on, goddammit. This is the little tidbits that people tune in for. <laughs> <laughs> Just like October is the 10th month. Right. But it's it means 8. Just like December is 10, but it's actually the 12th well, month. Come back to that. I'm I'm not going to remember. <laughs> but there was I've already forgot. Forget it. There was no indication <laughs> that the maritime sexagenarian refitted with new side ballast tanks in 1942, new boilers in 45, and a new engine in 56 was in trouble. Okay, so let's go ahead. Let's let's do it. Let's do it because you're right. This is this is good tidbits that people. Oh, forget it. I'm done. I think you should add this little discussion. <laughs> no, I am done. You're almost a sexagenarian. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking goddamn right. <laughs> What what am I don't I don't even know what is the f- the five it's uh Quinn I'm a Quinginarian Quinginarian my Quinginarian or Quigenarian or Quinarian I'm fucking getting old that's all that's all I am <laughs> Sometimes you wonder is it is it good to get old I guess it all well, depends see, on well, your see, viewpoint Well see they're saying here that you know although uh, Well I'm kind of like that ship because I got tra- I'll tell you. <laughs> The sulfur content in my bones is fucking high. I'm sure I'm like... ready to snap? (laughs) They're ready to go, baby. (laughs) Those rivets. I've snapped a few rivets. My goddamn rust on the top of my head. (laughs) We might have to... I can still haul a little bit of coal and and iron ore. We might have to outfit you with uh, some new new boilers. I wouldn't mind that. Where can I get new boilers? They're putting uh, some more, some that better, synthetic high-tech oil in my, to lube up my camshafts. They call that rum. <laughs> so old Dennis Hale was up in the wheelhouse on watch, and he went off duty at 8 o'clock, going to bed around 9.30, just in his undershorts, like we talked yeah. about the other day. How fucking warm is it in... How I, sh- I, I gotta stop swearing, because I go home and I just continue. Fucky fucking fuck fuck. Uh... Luckily, I have a deaf dog. Um, but how warm is it inside these these freighters? I mean, if we have any merchant marines listening or, uh, well, or ex merchant marines, that's you know if the boilers are going and it, it, I mean that yeah, could still, generate enough heat that that, that metal's yeah, maybe hot. You know, if he's if he's bunked near the boilers, but I think if you're the other end of the uh, right ship, but I'm, I'm sure there's I'm sure there's heat yeah. going through. I know that yeah, I get that, but dude. it's still the insulation and and the heat goes right through that steel. You know. It's not like it's holding on to the heat for a long time. Some people can't sleep with clothes on. True, true. <laughs> You're waiting for some kind of joke. Her name know, is, this is true. Her, <laughs> her, name, name. her name is Kelly. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't mind. It's platonic. Solely platonic. It was 1995. <laughs> she, 
Uh, I was young and impressionable. <laughs> sure you don't have any kids out there? With Harbor Beach off the port bow, the Morel and the Townsend plunged through the roaring night. Like many another long ship on the lakes that Monday, they were making the proverbial last trip of the season, a phrase that always sounded an ominous double meaning and sometimes came true. Yeah, no shit. Like if uh, if I was working a boat, mm-hmm. I would never sign up for say, that last. <laughs> I would never season. go. Uh, this is the last one. Yeah, yeah. I can you know knowing how filled with superstition the the seafaring world is. You know, even right. the diving world is there's superstition. Right? Like you but, would be like, it would yeah. be as if you would not be allowed to to use or utter right, those yeah. very words. You'd have ever. A, yeah, rabbit. Rabbit feet all like over your de- coat. Like if you, like you, like if, you <laughs> if you said that on a the ship, rabbit foot fur coat for the sea. If you if you were on a ship in November and you said, "Yeah, let's get this last trip done," like you 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 motherfucker, you're gonna get keelholed, right? Exactly. You know you are. <laughs> what did you say? What did you just say, boys? <laughs> we got a what would you call him? Got a fucking loose lipped bastard here. <laughs> He's going to have to be taught a little lesson, a wee diddly diddly lesson. Okay, so we get caught in a confused sea here, Radigan says. Miles apart and unable to see each other in the blinding snowstorm, the Townsend and the Morel kept in touch through radio telephone, communicating positions, state of the weather, nature of the seas. At 10 p.m., Connolly of the Townsend reported winds had reached 50 miles per hour and the seas were 12 feet and building. At the time, the Townsend was about eight miles above Harbor Beach. The sea was running from the north-northeast and the north-northwest simultaneously. In effect, both ships were caught in a violent, confused sea with tides converging on them from two different directions at once. They're getting hit from the north northeast, and they're getting hit from the north northwest, smashing them at the same time. Confused, very confused. Make up your mind. Come on, man. Hit us from the right. Hit us from. Don't hit us from both sides. I was going to make a. Are you a northeast? Are you a northeast wind? Are you a northwest wind? Just, just make up your mind. Make up your mind, because we can't take much more of this, boys. At about the same time of night, the freighter G.A. Tomlinson passed the Morel and noticed nothing wrong with the other ship. At one point, Captain Conley considered turning his boat back to the shelter of the St. Clair River, but he felt there was considerable danger of being caught broadside in the swarming seas and unable to get out of the trough. I can see what he means. Yeah. Yeah, you get in there, I'd imagine. It's like, how do you power out of something like that without that big of a ship? You're going to need... Some monstrosity power. Yeah, you don't just take a U-turn. You don't just no, cut a left. No, no, not at all. Reminds me of, what was that movie uh, with George Clooney and Wahlberg where there are fishermen out on the East Coast and they, the Great Storm or something? Perfect Storm. Oh, the Perfect Storm, yeah. Yeah, that, that uh, scene of the their little fishing boat, yeah. which isn't tiny. It's not huge like this freighter, but... And you, sh- you see it in the trough of the wave trying to power up. Right, right. That's insane. Now you take a ship that's 600 feet long. Yes. Like we're talking about here. Like trying to just turn that sideways in, oh, yeah, in waves yeah. like that. Forget it. Forget it. It's, forget about you, you're it. You're definitely going on. Yeah. Right. You're going to have that You're issue. going under. Yes, you're going to have some issues. 
Captain James A. Van Buskirk, 38, master of the 612-foot Benson Ford, overheard the other two skippers talking back and forth. He heard them discussing taking refuge in Thunder Bay near Alpena. But although he stayed on duty all night, he never heard a distress call of any kind at any time. The Ford was downbound from Escanaba, carrying 10,200 tons of iron ore pellets. Not as much as the Edmund Fitzgerald, because they were 20,000 tons more. Do you remember that? Yeah, thanks, Gord. <laughs> thanks, thanks, Gordo. Gordo. Thanks, Gordo. <laughs> I think that song alone taught the world so much about Great Lakes freighters and shipping. I'm just pissed off that old Gordon never said the word taconite in that song. Taconite. Like he could have like he could have so really somehow worked it in there. Yeah, yeah. If he was a true poet. Yeah, he like does Blake he goes, he goes or the Shelley. easy he goes the easy way out Gordon with or <laughs> or <laughs> Rhyme taconite, Gord. Yeah. <laughs> it wouldn't be the same though. I I, I don't think it'd be the same. <laughs> the same song because what really what rhymes with taconite because the or and the more really go well smooth the mighty might of the taconite chip <laughs> went down you're, you're on the grasping. bottom of get your gummy <laughs> you're grasping captain Connolly also remained in the pilot house all night and heard no distress signals he did pick up a conversation from the coast guard cutter acacia yeah, we just got a new floor made of acacia wood. Did you? <laughs> yeah, yesterday. I bought it yesterday. Just yesterday? Yeah, I'm starting to put it in today. The timing of the story is amazing. Well, synchronicities. Little, oh. ti- little like words you never hear, and all of a sudden, three times. Bam, 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 bam. Like taconite. Taconite. Now watch. If I hear taconite <laughs> on the radio today or anywhere, I'm going to lose my fucking mind. <laughs> Also, uh, the acacia had run into trouble, rolling heavy with a boat loose on deck. She turned back. As the storm developed and the winds reached reached 65 miles per hour, with the waves cresting at 25 feet or more, the Townsend began to roll 15 to 20 degrees. The bow would pitch into the seas, and as it came back, it took solid water over the decks. The water came aboard, forward, and went off aft, as the bow pitched into the towering seas, the prop was thrown out of the water. Yeah, that's wild. Big, big props out of the water. Out of the water on a that's five insane. over five hundred yeah. foot long ship. Attempt- I wonder, like, what kind of load that puts on the shaft. Oh, you know, being that yeah. that prop is used to the buoyancy, oh, people oh. don't think there's much buoyancy. That's a lot of buoyancy still pushing up on that that thin, you know, relatively thin shaft compared to the prop. Correct. The weight, because yeah. I mean, a blade yeah. is. Monstrous, you know, yeah. what 10 feet, 12 feet, whatever. I don't, yeah, I have no I, idea I what this is. Like it's big, over six feet long, yeah. like just the length of each blade. Six of feet, that two inches, I think, or they're probably like eight to 10 feet, yeah, long blades yeah. easily. Yeah, so that of you're talking a diameter blade. and, and yeah. wide, you know, they're probably of almost four 20 or five feet. foot mm-hmm. wide, yeah, each blade, yeah, but the yeah. diameter across to the have blade that is prop almost 20 feet yeah. out of the water, yeah. It's gigantic and a lot of weight. Wild. Insane. Attempting to adjust the gale. Attempting to adjust to the gale, the Townsend skipper abandoned the regular northbound channel, heading northeast out into the lake, holding her bow almost head on into the waves and the wind. The Morell skipper kept steering north-northwest, following the steamer channel. 
a course that put his ship's starboard side against the wind and the waves. Oh, gosh. The seas were building so high and fast that Captain Connolly restricted the forward and crew from going back aft from 10 p.m. to 10 a.m., except for one man who was allowed to get sandwiches. <laughs> I thought it was one woman. All right. Go, it was one woman, his wife. <laughs> Go get my sandwich. <laughs> I got a storm to handle. Go get my sandwich. There, we just lost. We lost about 30 feminist <laughs> listeners. <laughs> sorry. Sorry, ladies. I'm just meme. I'm, I'm quoting a meme. It's not how I, it's not how no, I he, uh, believe. He was like, all right, pull, pull straws, boys. <laughs> I was getting the sandwiches. They're all up there in the pilot house. I want a BLT. <laughs> Bring me the ham and cheese. Yeah, you get back. I said I wanted tuna. <laughs> Get me. Go back there. I said the tuna. <laughs> Dipshit. Carl. I said tuna. Carl. <laughs> Poor Carl. The two skippers kept talking through the storm. When Crowley of the Morel called Connolly at 11.50 p.m., the Townsend's master picked up the phone and said he would call back. The ship had started to blow around in the seas, and he was too busy to talk. He returned Crowley's call at 12.15 a.m., a quarter of an hour into the new day that threatened to be so much worse than the old. Question. Yes. Given the advanced technology of the jet skis we have today. <laughs> now, you've been in a jet ski. Have you been on the jet, a jet ski in the Great Lakes where there's like some good waves coming? To jump the uh, Yeah, jump, jump the waves. waves because it's awesome. It's awesome. But then you see like these jet skis on the giant surf oh, uh, yeah, competitions yeah. that are rescue jet skis, and they're going up like waves like this. Oh, right, right. D- do you think if they only had jet skis to get away on, they would have lived? They had rescue jet skis. Why are they not on every boat right now? Exactly. A bunch of, okay, boys, man your jet ski. And like, I'd be going, oh, finally. <laughs> and the sandwich guys, probably. At least I'm not getting <laughs> fucking sandwiches anymore. Get on that jet ski. Let's go ride them out, baby. Well, like the um, yeah, because they're they're using those jet skis to take those surfers, First, right, right, to do those record waves, like yeah, gigantic, 50, 60, yeah. 70 foot and to waves. rescue them too. Yeah, so yeah. they got to get out there through those waves to rescue them when they go down. So, you know, I've seen some of the footage of the jet skis. I mean, really, you know, going up those gigantic waves. They're powering up it too. They got some power. Yeah, so. they're amazing. Again, I think. If only they had jet skis. I want to put that out there. TGDP is Listeners. rewriting, rewriting <laughs> exactly. maritime history right now. Watch, watch a bunch of these, you know, these uh, freighters and whatnot. Now, fuck the lifeboats. Everybody's how many people we got? We can probably put two, two per jet ski. Well, it's going to be like pretty soon. They're going to be teaching in, in maritime classes. They're going to be teaching. Back then, they didn't have jet, jet skis, skis on the freighters. <laughs> like they do now. Exactly. <laughs> So these boys were really up a creek. All they had were these silly-ass lifeboats that basically it's a small version without a motor. Well, some of them had motors, but it's a small version of what they were just in, which is just going to kill them again. Oh, you, you made it out of the big one. We're going to put you in a little one and really kill your ass. <laughs> right, right. No kidding. <laughs> yeah. The Morell's master mentioned that his ship had just gone through the same thing as the Townsend and that he was working to keep her from being blown around sideways in the waves. The conversation between the two captains was brief. Both were fully occupied with the job of keeping their boats afloat. They wished each other good luck. That was the last word exchanged between them. The two freighters went their way. How do you, th- how do you think they... Like, I know how we would say it. Good luck, bitch. <laughs> do you think that's what they said? 
Hey, boys. Hey, you bitches. I wish you luck. What would you say? Fellas, it's, it's been good. good. No, I didn't know you. Fellas, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know you. No, if, I, if I was writing the lyrics, I would say, fellas, it's good to know you on this taconite journey. Arr. I don't know if you would say that, really. <laughs> you would be like, you'd be quoting some Gord's Gold there. The two freighters went their ways, the Morel having reported her position about 25 miles north of Harbor Beach, off the thumb of Michigan's Mitten, an area long feared as a graveyard for Great Lakes ships and seamen. The sister ships had parted forever, each steaming into the unknown through a storm that Captain Connolly called the worst he had ever seen on the Great Lakes. And as we do know, right, there's a... Uh, a whole big collection of shipwrecks right there off the, the off tip the of the thumb, thumb mm-hmm. right? And for those of you who are not familiar with Michigan, you know, well, what they mean by that is Michigan is a, made up of two peninsulas. The lower peninsula kind of looks like the, the, the back of a left hand if it were a mitten. And there's that area of water above the, the th- what would be the thumb of the mitten where some of the best shipwreck diving in the world lies. True. True facts. Yeah, a lot of wrecks there. Since the previous midnight... And all day long, the turbulent Tuesday of November 29th, 1966, the deadliest drama of all was being acted out on the stage of the Upper Lakes. At 9 a.m., the Townsend contacted Cleveland, reporting to the chief dispatcher for the Bethlehem Steel Fleet. She radioed that her gyroscope was out of order, and she was steering north-northeast, holding into wind at two miles per hour in monstrous seas. At 2 p.m., the Townsend was heading for Cove Island toward the top of Lake Huron. She reported her last contact with the Morel had been at 12.15 a.m. when the Morel was 12 to 15 miles ahead. Another company ship, the Arthur B. Homer, had been asked to watch for the Morel. At 6.40 p.m., the Homer called in that she was unable to make contact but noted the storm might have damaged the Morel's antenna. Nowhere. A ship or ashore had any signal of distress been heard. Central Radio in Rogers City, which handles ship-to-shore radio telephone traffic for the Upper Lakes, regularly monitored the standard AM ship distress frequency. But for varying periods Monday and Tuesday night and into early Wednesday, frequency was not received because of static from the heavy snow. Central Radio monitored the FM but had no record of any call for help on that frequency. The Morel, among other long ships passing up and down the lakes during the blow, carried both AM and FM equipment. So another long, bitter cold night of sound and fury swallowed Lake Huron in darkness that beat like the legendary Indian drum, counting the number of shipwreck victims over and over again. So I guess my other question is, how was the weather system back then you know i know in 1913 a little bit of an excuse not knowing what you're getting into because we didn't have even near the technology that we do now but this was the mid-60s do you think do you think they were just like we know what the weather's going to be but we got to get these pineapples to hawaii where was sunny elliott because sunny elliott was probably predicting weather back then can't tell dang Okay, so um, so the Morel went unreported, never made it up to never made it up to the Sioux, 
And Radigan says that meanwhile in Cleveland, Arthur Dobson, chief dispatcher for the Bethlehem Steel Fleet, had become increasingly concerned about two of his ships. When the reporting station at the Sioux failed to mention the arrival of either the Townsend or the Morell at the canal Wednesday morning, he put in an urgent call for information. The Coast Guard located the Townsend anchored in the St. Mary's River. The Morell was nowhere to be found. Interesting. Well, he was gone by then. Again, back to the weather. Remember I said Sonny Elliott? He yeah. was the weather forecaster there. Yeah. Old uh, Sonny. Sonny, he started in 1950. So he would have been weather forecasting. Did they go to Sonny is my question. You don't care. I know you don't care, but he was out there. One of Detroit's most beloved personalities. Between the last word from the Morell at 12.15 a.m. Tuesday and the first evidence of what had happened to the ship thereafter, there was a gap of 37 hours. At 1.12 p.m. Wednesday, the motor vessel GG Post reported sighting a body which the Coast Guard at Harbor Beach recovered. The dead man had ice in his hair and wore an orange life jacket identified with the name and markings of the Morell. The Coast Guard sent out an immediate alert from the rescue coordination center in Cleveland in the form of a mariner's notice to all shipping on the Great Lakes. Less than an hour later, a freighter G.A. Tomlinson spotted wreckage from a ship we came to the aid of a Coast Guard patrol vessel about four miles north-northeast of Harbor Beach, reported Captain Fitch. Sea conditions were five to six-foot waves out of the north-northwest, with the winds about 25 knots. We spotted three ring buoys, a two-gallon oil can from a lifeboat, with the name of the Morell on them. This was approximately 2 p.m. We recovered three bodies, all bobbing face down in life jackets within the space of a mile and turn them over to a Coast Guard vessel. So in the aftermath, there's just bodies bobbing all over the, yeah. all over the water here. Yeah. Coast Guard planes, helicopters, and ships swarmed into the area. Later in the afternoon, when search parties hunting along the snow-covered shoreline and across the still-menacing lake had virtually abandoned hope of finding any survivors, a helicopter crew from the Traverse City Coast Guard Air Station spotted what they took to be four dead men on a pontoon raft near shore until one of them raised his right arm and his head. Good old Dennis Hale saw the helicopter and tried to flag him, flag yeah. down their attention. Yeah, Dennis Hale. A burly deck watchman from Ashtabula greeted his rescuers with three words that he never tired of repeating. I love ya, he said. When they told him to rest and promised not to try to interview him about the sinking, he said, no, no, that's all right. I want someone to talk to me. Nice. I would imagine you, you've been freaking alone thinking you're going to die. Oh, yeah, Don't you have a dead body with you? Did oh, he's he... got uh, three other oh, dead three bodies. Oh, three dead bodies. Okay, yeah, three I thought he only had one guy alive with him, but for a while, then he went down. Um. Yeah, because you just spent a day and a half praying to God, cursing God, mm. you know, uh, talking to yourself, talking to your dead buddies, you know, uh, mentally losing it. Yes. You know. Yeah. Not knowing if you're going to live or die. Just I would think you're in pain, at least until you go numb from, you know, hypothermia. Yeah. Kind of thing. Yeah. So just an in, insane endurance right there yeah you know those cold days when you're out shoveling the snow yeah and then it, and you want to complain you're done you're like you're <laughs> done you're like ah oh, 
I just, I'm too cold. I'm uncomfortable. And then you look and you're like, there's so much left to do. Right? I'm going to be and here for another you, 20 minutes. <laughs> right, 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 right. And then you get the driveway all done and you're like, shit, I got to, I got to do the porch and the approach still. <laughs> so it's gonna, it's so much left to do. Yeah. I'm so cold and uncomfortable. Now, now what I'm saying is that keep that in mind. What I'm saying is that pills that, in comparison. I was going to say do the same thing, but do it in your underwear Wet. in a lifeboat in the middle of Lake Huron. Blizzard in a blizzard. <laughs> then you would have an idea. Oh yeah, and with dead bodies. A Coast Guard officer in the helicopter observed Hale to be in minor shock, but in amazingly good condition considering his ordeal he had no trousers or shoes on yet his bulk and the protection given him by his shipmates bodies appeared to have made his survival possible he says thanks fellas (laughs) fellas it's been good to know you (laughs) one of the rescue pilots remarked shaking his head in disbelief i frankly don't see how one guy lived i wouldn't think a guy could survive more than two hours in that cold water The ambulance man who took Dennis Hale from the helicopter to the Harbor Beach Hospital could feel the ice on his neck. The Coast Guard physician who examined him and found his body temperature 95 degrees, 3.6 below normal, said, I can't tell you why he's alive. It's a miracle. He's 26 and he didn't panic, but it's still a miracle. Yeah. Yeah. When your core temperature drops to that, that low of a temperature, you're in trouble. You're in a lot of trouble. I don't even know how he's thinking straightly. Straightly, I don't know how he's thinking straight. But you start to lose the th- the thinking ability. Yeah, that's the main thing. Is the confusion sets in? I shouldn't say main thing, but it's a big thing. Is the confusion sets in when you go hypothermic and you start doing stupid shit? You know, like right. crazy shit, like jump in the water to warm up, or yeah, yeah. You, you just... know, you're not thinking straight. You're not thinking clear. You're not even like sane. But judging from his conversation. He was coherent and with it. It sounds like it. Right, right. Reports. That's why they're all amazed, right? Yeah. I would be. I'd be like, what the? Dude. How? Right. Yeah, yeah, I'm how? I'm confused <laughs> when my body temperature drops to 98.4. <laughs> Actually, I'm just confused. Go ahead. Oh, I was, gonna, yeah, go I was waiting for a good like point where <laughs> it's like, what are we going to do next? I got an idea. <laughs> <laughs> While hardened seamen and police asked the same questions, Dennis Hale put the mystery to a priest who visited his bedside after blessing 11 bodies plucked from Lake Huron by boat and helicopter. Father, why am I alive? Jesus. (laughs) Jesus said you get to live today. Those little kids in the hospital, fuck them. (laughs) The fat guy on the the lifeboat. (laughs) Late for his... Late for the boat because he had a few too many beers with the boys. Lucky you. Mm -hmm. Because God wants you to be alive, my son, the priest said to him. Well, of course he does. I know why I'm alive, Hale told the priest. Well, the inverse of that or the the, what you infer when you say because God wants you to be alive is that the people that died that are dying that day or dead, God wanted them dead. What what the fuck (laughs) is that about? The other boys on on the boat, God wanted them dead? I We're know, not going to get into this discussion, we are, are we? We are right now. <laughs> I know why I'm alive, Hale told the priest. One, because God wants me to be alive. Two, because I eat Two, a lot of bacon. Because <laughs> I'm a big guy. Two, because God wants me to suffer before I die. He said that? Yeah. Well, that's why he invented marriage. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm kidding. I'm kidding. My wife knows I'm kidding. Um, I hope she knows I'm kidding. While the solitary survivor recuperated from his ordeal, the rescue work continued. Through Wednesday night, helicopters and Coast Guard surface craft crisscrossed over predetermined search areas in a fruitless hunt for other survivors. By dawn on Thursday, December 1st, the weather had cleared and the winds had died down. Just off Forestville on the Thumb, rescue boats rendezvoused, then shut off their motors to drift for two hours, figuring the rate and direction of drift would provide a clue on where to concentrate the search. As a result, nine more bodies were recovered south of Harbor Beach. But as the day wore on, the weather began closing in again. Snow began to fall and temperatures dropped. The search continued doggedly, but the last faint hope that if one man could make it on an open raft, Mm -hmm. then perhaps other men found safety in a protected lifeboat went on uh, glimmering. Mm -hmm. The Morel carried 29 men into Lake Huron Monday night. One returned alive. 20 bodies had been fished from the water that killed them. Eight men were still missing and now given up for dead. The maritime world waited to find out how the Morel met her doom as Coast Guard officials held a long session with the only man living who could tell. Crazy stuff. Yeah, it is one of those miracle-to-be-alive stories, a true one. Again, I think it's a Um, testament to uh, how difficult it is to kill a person, really. You know, we're pretty... Yeah, well, that's what we're going to get into. Pretty fucking rugged, you know, little biological entities. As Dennis Hale told his story of the final minutes of the Morel were made as clear as a sailor's nightmare come true. When the pilot house watchman had gone to bed at 9.30 in the forward crew's quarters, he had tried to go to sleep there in the noisy bow. He had no idea of how severe the weather would become as the seas and winds reached a crescendo in the almost four hours that he tossed and turned in his bunk. Lake Michigan was being lashed by a gale force winds of almost 70 miles per hour when the Morel shook in her death tremors like a house cat pounced by a mountain lion, her <laughs> spine broken in a blow. Where'd you come up with that? How should it shake? I can see them trying to write this. It shook like a, like a, like a puppy dog. No, no, no. A that's drunk, stupid. a drunk uh, without any booze for a week. It shook like a. <laughs> It shook like a sapling. On, no, no, no. That's too cliche. Too cliche. <laughs> like a sapling, you know. A house cat. Wind. I got it. A house cat <laughs> like house by a mountain lion. Did you ever see that before? They shake like the Dickens. Shook like the Dickens is what I would have came up with <laughs> if I wrote this. He shook like the Dickens. This. How does the Dickens shake these days? <laughs> no. Hey, how's your Dickens shaking? <laughs> Well, to be honest. <laughs> Several times, Hale was jarred from the edge of dreams as the Morel lurched through the storm. He tossed and turned in his bunk somewhere between sleeping and waking. The waves outside were giant bowling balls roaring down Lake Huron Alley to make a solid strike and sweep the kingpin into the gutter. Well, hold the phones here. <laughs> we got cats. Now we're at the bowling alley. What gives? Listen. When it was it was league night when Radigan was writing this. You know? Radigan, was, was like, I, I mean, he's I got, got a book. I, I got to give him more, credit. Like he's no Blake chapters. or Shelley or any of these. I got a couple uh, more chapters to write before <laughs> uh, before we hit the the lanes. <laughs> Hold on, boys. No, he's like, hey, Radigan, it's your it's your turn. Hold on, I'm Hold just on. trying to finish this paragraph. <laughs> there, it there it is. Inspiration hits. Boys, set up another round. I just came up with another page. 
A loud thump woke me up, Hale said, thinking they might have dropped anchor. Then there was another hard thump. The lights blinked out. My bunk light wouldn't turn on. I figured it was time to get up. Before I was completely out of bed, the emergency bell began ringing the ship's general alarm. The thump, say, he didn't. <coughs> he was in like another thump, like a stale bread falling from the counter. Uh, another thump, like, <laughs> like a boot on the side of a head. <laughs> another thump, like 12 croquet balls falling off a shelf in my garage. Another thump. It's like a, it's like a thump when you, it's like a thump of a dropping of the remote control when it when it, when it lands on the on the on the area rug, not onto the hardwood <laughs> floor, sure. not the crash of the hardwood floor, but the thump of the area a rug. A thump, a, a dull thump, but soft nonetheless. Nonetheless, a thump, like twelve remote controls falling at the same time from a four foot tall couch, <laughs> knocked by a cat. Pouncing. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, old Radigan. We had to drag him through the gutter there. <laughs> Hale answered the call promptly. He rushed topside in just his undershorts. He got to the companionway. A man stared at him and shouted six words that helped save his life. None shall pass unless I say... <laughs> Bring me a shrubbery. <laughs> what did he shout? He shouted, go get me another sandwich. <laughs> Give me. A, I wanted bacon, lettuce, and tomato, boy. <laughs> We're going to need sandwiches in the lifeboat, Hale. Hale. Hurry back. And don't come back without my sandwich. No, he said, oh, my God, get your jacket. Hale dashed back to his cabin. In the darkness, he couldn't find his shoes or his pants, but he put on his life jacket and pea coat. He ran out into the howling storm. His bare feet stepped in slush ice on the deck. He could see the boat bending in its death agonies. A midship was higher than the stern, quite a bit higher, and he saw steam escaping there. The morel was buckling at the number eight hold and about to crack in two. In the frantic and confused action, Hale thought he saw at least one of the two lifeboats launched from the stern section. Moments after he reached deck, the bow and stern separated. The morel's power for lights and distress signals evidently was lost in the initial stage of the breakup. When the lights blinked and went out, that was it. The first thud must have snapped power cables running from the stern engine room to the forward bridge where the radio went dead and no emergency power in the bow to send an SOS or mayday. Many of the Morel's crewmen apparently went into the 34-degree waters with their orange life jackets on, perhaps unaware that no one knew they were in trouble and no help was on the way. Hale estimated the elapsed time between the general alarm and the moment the Morel's bow went down was about 15 minutes. Wow, it's pretty quick. Yeah. He first had seen a crack that twisted and ripped at the same time. Starting on the starboard side, then he had seen the severing of stern from bow. Everybody get in the raft and hold tight. So along with a dozen shipmates, Hale crowded into one of the two pontoon rafts carried on the forward section, just behind the wheelhouse. Captain Crowley came aboard the raft at first and cheered everybody by pointing out what he identified as another ship off the port bow. As the bow sank, the seamen on the raft waited for the water to reach their level and wash them into Lake Huron. 
in one of the most bizarre incidents in the history of shipwrecks, they found themselves abreast of the stern. The stern, still powered by its engines, was facing us, and it started to run into the bow section, ramming us in the side. Yeah, so so you make it into a lifeboat, but the ass end of the ship is going to sink you. It's right, gliding yeah. into it's, you. Yeah, um, wild, like, like out of yeah. a sci-fi movie, you know? Yeah. The impact of one of these rammings, perhaps combined with the force of a wave smashing over the submerged bow, hurled the raft and all of its occupants into the sea. Cries for help, last calls to friends were lost between the hills and valleys of the waves and the furious voices of the wind. Orange life jackets bobbed farther and farther apart in the confused tides of the storm. We should point something out for our young listeners when they say the last calls. They did not pull out their their phones and make calls, make right. their last calls. There were calls. There were some selfies being taken, I'm sure. <laughs> check in, check in, check into Lake Huron. Lake Huron. <laughs> Feeling cold and sad. <laughs> Lost my boat. Cold and confused. Yes. <laughs> in scant hours, perhaps less than two, these lonesome men, without aid of raft or lifeboats, would say their prayers in the darkness, think wistfully of home and loved ones, then drop their heads from weariness and lack of hope and cruel exposure to drown in a smother of spray whipped from the waves by the wind. A few might never be found, but most of their bodies would be recovered the next day or the next from the frigid Huron or its snow-covered shores with their boots frozen to their feet and the ice growing in their hair. Many would be identified by FBI agents through their fingerprints, and at least one would carry marks of having tangled with the wild propeller of the Morel stern section. Oh, yikes. Yeah, yeah. You're not going to win that one. If you tangle with the propeller of the morale, you're probably not going to win it. Yeah, you know, like, you see the uh, you see the storm of brew, and you're like, this day is getting pretty bad. <laughs> Everybody to the lifeboats. <laughs> oh, this day is really, <laughs> really getting bad. bad. <laughs> Boat ripped in two. Oh, oh shit. Getting, can it get it? It can't get <laughs> it any worse. Get anymore. This has got to be the worst of the voice. <laughs> the stern section is going to run into us. Son of a... It couldn't possibly get late. <laughs> you mother. You couldn't just kill me right off the bat. You had to put me through the ringer here. My God has forsaken me. Exactly. I'm like, what would that priest say to that guy who died? Well, God wanted you to die. <laughs> oh, he didn't just want you to die. He hated your ass. He wanted you to die in a bad way. God's like, oh, uh... AIDS or or some horrible disease isn't good enough for you. I'm gonna I'm gonna sink your boat. I'm gonna make you think you got a chance. Then I'm gonna take it away. I'm gonna make you think you got another chance. I'm gonna take it away. Only four men made it back to the pontoon raft catapulted from the Morel's bow: Arthur Sojik, thirty-three, deckhand from Buffalo; Charles Fosbender, forty-two, <laughs> wheelsman from St. Clair, Michigan; John Cleary Jr., twenty from Cleveland; and Hale. They clung to the grating of the raft, unable to speak. The shock of the cold water had snatched their breath away. That's what it does, too. Do you remember jumping into that damn cold-ass water for the uh, Special Olympics? Oh, that the, polar plunge the polar thing plunge? we did? Remember that? Oh, yeah, yeah. I remember jumping into that water, and it snatched my breath away. It was like... <gasps> 
I couldn't speak. I was like, what the f- mother? Right. And you were yeah. you were out of the water in less oh, than 20 I wasn't. seconds. No, I got beat. Remember, I went with my family. Guess who'd, who got pushed? <laughs> oh, yeah, they, they all climbed out. I would say, Josh, if you're out there listening, Josh actually physically like pushed my face away. <laughs> so, he could, so he could get to the ladder, yeah. <laughs> they were, uh, yeah. I did sit in that water for about four minutes, I think, and it was cold. So I can't even imagine. The four men watched Although, a I will weird say, drama on the lake. I was just going to say, it starts to burn, you know? And yeah. then all of a sudden, it's not that, you know, I'm sitting there, like, yeah. treading water after a few, like, yeah. okay, I could I could do this. Yeah, well, you just got to get used to it. Cold, <laughs> yeah, showers and, cold showers and ice baths. You get for used good to for it, you. Yeah. For a couple of minutes. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, I think the longer... 37 hours, not to... Not yeah, to. I was going to say. They saw no signs of life in the water, but they started... But they stared in awe at the berserk stern of the Morel running all over the Huron, long after the bow had sunk. They never saw the stern go down. Hale said the last time he saw the aft section, it was moving under power, light shining and thrashing around in the lake like a great wounded beast with its head shot off. Hale lost no time in firing the parachute flare because the skipper had said he saw a boat and we were signaling to it. He lost one flare overboard. And then he fired two more early Tuesday that went unnoticed, except by the desperately hopeful eyes on the raft. Hale saved one flare for a last resort. The pontoon roller coastered the waves through the bitter cold darkness. Half frozen, the four survivors huddled together for bodily warmth and human company. They talked to keep up their spirits, but nobody said what they thought caused the ship to crack. We didn't try to reason why. We were just interested in our survival. Jack Cleary, he was a nice kid. We called him Butch, asked what chance we had, and I said a lot better than the guys who weren't here on the raft with us now. (laughs) Well, true. Truth, yeah. The sound of their voices encouraged the four (laughs) remaining shipmates. Not quite as good as the guy watching Sonny Elliott on the forecast at home. (laughs) That guy's got a better chance. Cleary asked me how many kids I had. Charlie and I talked about going home, but the specter of death already had joined the men on the raft. Young Cleary, making his first trip on the lakes, was the first to go. Shortly after daybreak, I began poking Butch, but he wasn't moving. Sojek also quit moving. We were less than six hours adrift on the lake, and they were dead. Hale never forgot the glazed expression in the eyes of the two deck watchmen, and he noticed the wheelsman, Fosbender, weakening as the day wore on. He could not help but compare the open raft with its two-inch railings outside to the new life raft gear that came equipped with the coverings that could be zipped over survivors to help keep them warm, plus emergency radio equipment, rations, etc. The 42-year-old Fosbender began coughing hard. He complained that his lungs were filling with water. I told him to crawl near me. As he did, he raised himself in the raft and said he saw land. We were heartened, but still saw no signs of activity. Charlie then moved up and put his arms around me. I couldn't move on the raft. My bare feet were frozen. Now and then, Charlie would raise himself to look for life. Malignant seas were still running, and the sun failed to shine all day. Not one ray of warmth for men who were freezing within sight of rescue but it would not be until early afternoon of the next day that the alert sent searching parties out to hunt for the men of the morel. That afternoon, I asked Charlie what time it was, and he said, five after two. I asked him when the ship went down, and he said, 
12 hours ago. Dennis Hale still had 24 hours of ordeal ahead of him. For Fosbender, time was running out, and we, at about sundown, he collapsed while looking toward land. We both could see the land, and we had oars, and Charlie was still alive, but neither of us had enough strength to row. We were frozen stiff. Fosbender told Hale, I'm going to throw in the sponge. And then, as the solitary survivor noted, he just passed on. So he just said, I'm... Yeah. Throwing in the the sponge. Throwing in the towel. Throwing in the sponge. Said the same thing? I think so. I'm giving up. I'm quitting. And then, I'm done. I'm throwing in the (laughs) chamois. Is that what it was? A sham wow. <laughs> sham wow. <laughs> sham wow. That's it. I'm throwing in the sham wow. Ronco's, I'm throwing in Ronco's sham wow right now. <laughs> okay. Alone with three bodies on the raft in a man-killing tempest, Hale continued his macabre 36-hour ride on the Huron. He burrowed under the dead men, and their stiff bodies became his blankets. He had no expectations of lasting out the night. Ice began to form on the raft. I was unconscious, off and on. I had dreams, all kinds of dreams about the ship and other sorts of things, he said. I thought I was on the morel, talking to the wheelsmen. I asked him if they had launched the lifeboats. When conscious, Hale realized his predicament. I figured maybe through the night I would freeze to death. He suffered weird hallucinations, fantasized he was being attacked by seagulls, Imagined he was back in a safe harbor, feeding sandwiches to his pals. He talked to his dead shipmates. He shouted into the sky for help. He wanted to know why the others had died so fast, but he was still alive. Yeah, man, your mind would be really uh, reeling here, right? Yeah. Like, just... Put you through the ringer, man. Yeah. What does not kill you makes you stronger. That it does. And somehow, he survived. Tuesday night on the raft, um, he made it through. But when uh, dawn Wednesday, he says that uh, he thought it was all over. He says, I had no hope at all. I was praying to live, but I was hoping to die. He knew the raft had run aground, drifting and bouncing between huge boulders. He could see farmhouse lights in the distance. I could have waded ashore, but my body was paralyzed with cold and pain. I couldn't move, but I began yelling. Then it began to snow hard. I picked ice off my peacoat to eat, but then I saw this figure appear out of nowhere. A mustached, milky-complexioned man, dressed in white, stood on my raft, warning me not to eat ice. He told me... I was going to say, that's just going to make you colder. He warned me. um, He told me I would get pneumonia if I did. When When he disappeared, I took more ice. He popped into view again with the same warning. I didn't touch the peacoat after that. You son of a bitch. I just told you. <laughs> what? What did I just tell you? Don't eat the ice. What do you do? You eat the ice. It's like a kid. <laughs> Stop eating the paste. I bet Hale was a paste eater. <laughs> Sometime during the day, Hale struggled to shoot off the parachute flare he had saved for the last resort. But his eyes were playing tricks on him, and the boat he thought he saw turned out to be a buoy. The husky six-footer had drained all of his endurance by mid-afternoon. Ice was forming on his body, and the end was near. But Hale still had the strength and the courage when he heard the helicopter at four o'clock to raise his head and wave an arm from the fortress of dead bodies after an incredible odyssey in Arctic weather across tumultuous seas in bare feet 
under shorts and a pea coat. I love you. I love you. I love you. Is what he said when the rescue crew came up. I bet. Damn, man. Crazy story. Crazy uh, story of survival. Right here in our own Great Lakes. Yeah. So There's something like that at Union Lake, too. Not quite. It's a rowboat, and he was in the water for about 16 minutes. So, well, there's, there's, um, so that's the difference with getting on to a wreck that they sank for a, yeah. for a, a restorative reef project slash scuba diving attraction. Attraction, right? Yeah. Um, you don't have that story to go along with it. Right, that like mm-hmm. when you get down on the on the wreck and you you see the opening in the ship, it's not because they they cut it with a torch so divers could swim it out. It's because of the fury of the lake the ripped, ripped that son of a bitch the in bitch half, tore it in half. Yeah. yeah, and then you can you can hear those stories like like that's what you know. A lot of people they'll do some of the shipwrecks in the Great Lakes and like ah, it's a timber pile. Mm-hmm. Or that's yeah, all busted up. It's not that good of a of a dive. But I mean, I I I see that, and I'm like, well, yeah. But there's a story to to right. that like mm-hmm. ripped up, mangled mess, which is just a a, a pile of yeah, the shallow stuff. Yeah, can get right destroyed yeah, by yeah, the weather too. Sure, it yeah. didn't happen in the wreck itself, but yeah, I hear you. So, which is different than you know? So is that wreck not as good as this one? That's clinically you know yeah, pristine pristine you know but but was placed there right. you know uh by engineers true i don't know i'm i mean as, as fun as there's those, something to as be fun said as those wrecks are to yeah. do and dive like there's that there's that tragedy and that passion and that history that yeah, the story. always makes the, the 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 dive hit home so much more you yeah. know well it becomes a symbol of you know all these great qualities of humanity you know Courage and what's the word? Endurance, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, all that stuff comes to mind. Those great words that don't mean anything until you see something that really symbolizes it. Ending words, parting words. I love you. 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 I like it. That's almost as good as all right, all right, all right. All right, all right, all right. All right, all right, all right. Should we? Should we to read, quote the should, famous Matthew McConaughey? Should we read all the names? Do that. Is that too corny? Uh, should a ship bell ring? Twenty. So the following crew members who lost their lives as a result of this casualty have been recovered and positively identified, and here are their names of everybody who went down: Arthur I. Crowley. Age 47, Master. Phillips E. Caputz, age 51, First Mate. Duncan R. McLeod, age 61, Second Mate. Charles H. Fosbender, age 42, Wheelsman. Henry Reichmiller, age 34, Wheelsman. Stuart A. Campbell, age 60, Wheelsman. Albert P. Wymie, age 51, Watchman. Norman M. Bragg, age 40, Watchman. Larry G. Davis, age 27, Ordinary Deck Watch. Arthur E. Stojic, age 41, Deckhand. John J. Cleary Jr., age 20, Deckhand. John H. Schmidt, age 46, Chief Engineer. 
Valmer A. Marchildon, age 43, first assistant engineer. Wilson E. Simpson, age 50, oiler. Arthur S. Fargo, age 52, fireman. Chester Kanjeka, age 45, fireman. Leon R. Truman, age 45, coal passer. Nicholas Homick, age 35, second cook. Joseph A. Massim, age 59, porter. Charles J. Sestakis, age 49, porter. George A. Dahl, age 38, third assistant engineer. And Saverio Grippi, age 53, coal passer. You forgot Carl, age 21, sandwich getter. <laughs> also, well, I should point out, Duncan McLeod was on there. I think the fourth guy you read. Duncan McLeod. He's the Highlander, man. Well, hang on, we he can't die. Ones? He can't die unless his head is separated from and, his body. Uh, only there can be only one. And at the time of the sinking, yeah, there were uh, still missing were Ernest G. Marcotte, age sixty-two, third mate. John M. Grohl, age twenty-one, ordinary deck watch. Alfred G. Norcunis, thirty-nine, second assistant engineer. Donald E. Worcester, age 38, oiler. David L. Price, age 19, coal passer. Stanley J. Satlawa, age 39, steward. And the only survivor to the Daniel J. Morell was Dennis Hale, age 26, watchman. He had four kids at 26. That's how they did it back then. You've been busy, yo. All right, everybody. Um, I hope you enjoyed that little look at the sinking of the Daniel J. Morell. Yeah, Um, it gave you a little more. This is a a long one. we got to get out of here. Yeah, plus it gave you a little insight on the Great Lakes themselves. Yeah. I'm sure ocean-going wrecks have similar stories, but this is, yeah, this is. uh, This one hits home to our uh, November gales. So, Okay, on that note, Fella, see it's been fellas. To, it's been good to know you. It's nice. It's been nice to <laughs> ship the taconite with you, maybe. I love you. I love you. I love you. Safe diving. See ya. Was it the three that were missing? Were they all together? Or am I jumping way too far ahead? Yeah. Okay, here we go. Good questions, though. Good, good, good try. Questions. Good try. Good try. If I had the answers for you, it would have been great. Oh. <laughs>